The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Actually, before you go to the book of Acts, which is where we have been studying together, if you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 11. And this will be the foundation of the backdrop for Acts chapter 2 that we'll look at after we read this passage. We will continue with Children's Church next week as we do on the first and third. And so today we'll all be in here together. Taking us back to the Old Testament. Uh, the Bible is 66 books, but it's one story. Many human authors, but one ultimate author, writer, that's God himself. So every book complements the overall theme of the Bible, which the culmination climax is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his first coming, but also his second coming. So here in Genesis chapter 11, uh, the context here is there was the great flood in the days of Noah, about probably 2,500 B.C., so 4,500 years ago, really happened. It's a true story. Noah was a real man. Uh, God judged the earth and saved just eight people, that was Noah and three of his sons and all of their wives. And from Noah and those three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, as soon as they got off the ark, God blessed them in Genesis chapter 9 and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Uh, so the, the entire population had been decimated, and so now God needed to repopulate the earth, and so he gave a special blessing on Noah and his sons to do that very thing, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so that happened, and so rather quickly, Human beings multiplied, and so now the, the whole earth is covered with the human race once again. They're still sinful, and so who knows how long after the flood this happened. Uh, the Tower of Babel, another famous story in the Old Testament. It is a true story. It's an amazing story. So let's look at what happened at the Tower of Babel, which is a historic judgment on God's part because humanity continues to be self-centered and sinful even after the judgment of the flood. And so it says at that time, after the days of Noah, verse 1 of Genesis 11, now the whole earth, this is the entire human race, used the same language and the same words. So today we have thousands of different languages and even more different dialects. It's true wherever you go. You don't have to go around the world to hear different dialects. You just come to the Silicon Valley and hear different dialects. Well, why do people speak different languages? Um, well, according to the Bible, this is where it all started. Prior to the Tower of Babel, everybody spoke the same language and could communicate. Something happened. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And, it came, and by the way, when... People can communicate on the same level and talk the same talk. That tends to unify. It's when people don't speak your language, you tend to, that forms clicks usually. That separates people. That's what's going to happen here. Now, the whole earth used the same language. Uh, they were all together. They had a master plan, verse 2. And it came about as they journeyed east, this is the growing humanity, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. This is over by Babylon, modern-day Iraq, that kind of area. And they settled there. They settled there. That's significant. God said, fill the earth. They decided, no, we're going to stop and settle. we got our own plan and agenda. We're not going to fill the earth as they were given the mandate from God. Verse 3, and they said to one another, so this was kind of a consent, the consensus agreement, master plan. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. So they're going to build something on a grand scale. Verse 4, and they said, come, let us build for ourselves, not God. Let us build for ourselves. This is self-centered. This is sin. A city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Wow. Reach into heaven. Why in the world do they want to do that? Well, here was their motive. Um, and let us make for ourselves. So that phrase, us, 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 ourselves. So this is totally egocentric, self-centered. This is sinful to the core. Uh, God is not a part of this plan. Let us make for ourselves a name, a name. So a reputation. We want to be great. We want to be exalted. We want to be magnified. 
lest we be scattered abroad all over the face of the whole earth and not have significance. Yet God told them, fill the earth. This is utter defiance willfully against the maker, God Almighty. God sees this going on. God knows the hearts. Verse 5, God says, the Lord said, Yahweh said. Who's Yahweh? Yahweh is the Trinity. Yahweh is God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is included here, we know from the New Testament, as Paul refers to him as Yahweh in the book of Romans and other places. And so Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which uh, humanity had built. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people. Who is God talking to? Who's the Lord talking to? Behold, they are one people. And they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. It's not good. Verse 7. Come, let us go down. God is talking to himself and says, let us go down. This is the Trinity talking amongst themselves, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us go down in there. Confuse their language. Let's mess up their plan. Let's judge their self-centered plan in order that they may not understand one another's speech. This is where the confusion of languages happened and originated in world history. You know, so today we see that. I'm reminded, I go to a different country, Honduras. I just got back from Honduras four weeks ago. And me no speak of Spanish are very good. Uh, I took it for three years in high school, but that's a long time ago. And so there were times where I was get, kind of getting frustrated. It's like in personal conversation, I wanted to talk to all these pastors, and they no speak of English, and so this is not happening. Um, so it was, a, it was a reminder, this is this cursed language barrier. It inhibits fellowship, it inhibits unity, and it inhibits peace, intimacy in human relationships. And so here's where it all started. So uh, you've got this confusion of languages. By the way, uh, the Bible in the Christian worldview is the only belief system on planet Earth that answers this question in lifelong dilemma of why are there so many different languages around the world? Evolution does not answer that question. And any other, pick your religion, doesn't have an answer. The Bible is the only one. And it is explicit, the answer. It's right here. Why do we have so many different languages on planet Earth? Genesis chapter 11. God Almighty did it. He did it as a curse. And so God scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. And therefore, its name was called Babylon or Babel. Blah, 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 blah. Because that's what it sounds like when you don't understand somebody else's language. They're babbling because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So um, this language barrier created separation and um, broke down barriers between human beings. And it was judgment as a result of judgment. So that's what sin does. Sin creates separation. Uh, judgment creates separation. Love, forgiveness, the work of Christ brings unity among people in relationships. Unity, unity. That's what the love of Christ does in the gospel. And so we're going to see that in the book of Acts with the backdrop of the Tower of Babel, of how the message of Jesus Christ, the good news, uh, which is not just to the Jews but to the entire world, regardless of your gender, your socioeconomic background, your ethnicity, the color of your skin, the language that you speak, the country that you were born in, the country that you're a citizen of, it doesn't matter. The gospel is for all of humanity, and when it is understood and believed, it inculcate or brings unity despite all of your background. That's reflected even in this congregation here. We have people from all many different dialects and many different ethnicities, and some of you even from different countries. And if you know Jesus Christ, you are part of one family. It's amazing. And being a part of a spiritual family actually has stronger ties than blood family, according to the Bible. Because you can relate on a more intimate level because you are a child of Almighty God. You're in a supernatural, eternal family with him. And here's how God made it all possible. And that's let's go to Acts chapter 2 uh, and we'll go there. So we're just going to look at the first 15 verses today. Uh, this is one of my favorite events in all of world history. It's called Pentecost Sunday. Actually, I, I recognize it as the birthday of the church the body of Christ, because indeed it is. In the first 15 verses there, I just broke it up into three main points, and we'll, we'll go that way to see if we can uh, see the flow of Luke's thought as he records real history. Acts chapter 1 was the ascension of the Son. The ascension of Jesus Christ was the main event that happened in Acts chapter 1. We saw that. And just before he ascended, Jesus said to the 11 remaining 
apostles, wait here, stay in Jerusalem, and wait for the promise, Acts 1.8. Wait for the promise. What promise? The promise he's been talking about for three and a half years that he had been with his disciples. What was the promise? The promise, John the Baptist even articulated the promise three and a half years before the event in Acts chapter 1 with the ascension. When John the Baptist came and prepared the way of Jesus, uh, it is recorded in Matthew chapter 3, but also in Luke 3.16 very specifically, uh, John the Baptist was preparing the way of the Messiah for the Jews and he was baptizing people, those that would recognize they were sinful and they wanted to identify with the community of Yahweh or God. And he said, I baptize with water, but one greater than me is coming. He was talking about the Messiah. He won't baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will dunk you and immerse you and identify you in the Holy Spirit. The supernatural Spirit of God will come down from heaven. And do a great, unprecedented, supernatural, amazing work. That was the promise that John the Baptist gave very specifically. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. Someday, Jesus the Messiah will baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus himself reiterated that promise. Midway through his ministry, he said in John 7, the Holy Spirit is coming in a way he never has before. He hasn't yet been given or poured out. He is in our presence. He's in your midst. He is among you. He is he is with you, Jesus said. The Holy Spirit is with you, but he shall be in you. That's the new thing that Jesus promised, the promise uh, about the coming Holy Spirit. Right now he is with you. He will be in you. That's John 7 and John 14 and John 16. And then at the end of Jesus' ministry, at the time of his death, he says the same thing. And then he rises again from the dead. He's about to ascend to heaven. And then he reiterates the promise one more time for the 11 awaiting apostles wait here be patient to receive the promise what was the promise it was the outpouring the coming of the holy spirit in a way that had never been seen in the history of humanity and this was also a promise from the old testament jeremiah 31 ezekiel and many other places the holy spirit would come and actually live inside god's people indwell them permanently all believers that did not happen In the Old Testament, that did not happen in the days of Jesus while he was on earth. This will be new. And the fulfillment is right here in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is about the Holy Spirit coming to you if you are a believer. This is the history. This is when it started. Acts chapter 1, the ascension of the Son. Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes to you. Let's look at it. I titled this sermon, God Pours Out His Spirit, Pouring, Drenching. And that's, that's the imagery that's communicated in the Old Testament and here. It was a pouring. It was a flood. It was a drenching where God began to pour out his spirit. God hasn't stopped pouring out his spirit. There is an ongoing flow of the Holy Spirit that continues through the church age. We're going to see that. But here's where it started. Here's where it was inaugurated. So let's go ahead and look at the first point, which is the first four verses. So the context, again, is the 11 apostles are waiting in Jerusalem patiently with faithful women and other disciples, 120 people in that upper room, says chapter 1, verse 13. They're praying, they're waiting, and they replace Judas with Matthias. So now they have 12 apostles. Now they are set, and the time is at hand. And now one of the the most important religious feasts in the Old Testament, Pentecost, has arrived. It's 50 days after Passover. Passover, one of the most important Old Testament feasts as well in the Old Testament Passover was when they would slaughter a lamb and spill its blood, symbolizing that God needed to shed blood in order for forgiveness of sin to be a reality. And Jesus died as the lamb on the feast of Passover, not coincidentally, but in God's perfect timing. Jesus died on Passover. Absolutely amazing. And the same thing is true on Pentecost. One of the most celebrated and significant feast days for the Jews in the entire calendar year. So, And you've got pilgrims from all over the then-known world, these Jewish believers from other countries who speak different languages, and they converge on Jerusalem, the capital, with the temple for the Passover, and they stay there because they know Pentecost is only 50 days away, and all Jewish men of a certain age had to be there. For that feast of Pentecost, it was required. So you've got Jerusalem and its environs is just filled, jam-packed with Jews from all over the world. Probably a million plus people for that little city at that time. 
So this is the day of Pentecost, one of the, the most important feast days of the year. That's the backdrop. That's the context. Let's go ahead and read verse 1 through 4 of chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost had come, this is right after they replaced Matthias. On the very day of Pentecost, all of a sudden, they were all together in one place. Who's they? Well, and connects it with chapter 1. So it seems to be seamless. This means the 12 apostles and the other disciples. So you got 120 believers together, probably in the upper room. It's a huge upper room. And there they are. They're waiting. They're patient. They're praying. They're having fellowship, waiting on the Messiah. And their prayers are answered on the day of Pentecost. They were together in that house all in one place. Verse 2, and suddenly. Suddenly means it was totally unexpected. It happened just like that. And also it was a supernatural event. And suddenly there came from heaven, not the sky, not the atmosphere. This is not a natural. It came from heaven. A totally different dimension, the spiritual dimension. And so suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. So it's like wind. It's not the wind. It's like wind. And it's not a mild blowing breeze. It is a violent wind. Think tornado. Think hurricane. Think frightening. Think devastation. That is the sound. Ear numbing. Walls shaking. Violent is the terminology. That's what happened? So they're sitting there and all of a sudden, boom, the house is shaken with this noise. So it's something they heard. This is the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't always work this way. Actually, rarely does he work this way where there's outward manifestations of it, of a supernatural character. But he did on this day. And so there's this violent. So that's the first thing. They hear this noise. It's rattling and it filled that this noise filled the whole house. So they were in the house, probably the upper room where they were sitting. They're sitting on the floor. Not only did they hear something amazing on this day, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit of God invaded planet Earth in a way like never before, verse 3, there appeared to them tongues as a fire. So not only did they hear the workings of the Spirit, they saw something. They literally saw something. And it was supernatural and it was from heaven. What was it? It was like fire, as of fire. It was not fire. It was like fire. It was supernatural light from heaven and it came down distributing itself in tongues that's what it looked like and there appeared to them as tongues of fire distributing themselves it's this is very interesting uh these it's like lightning supernatural fiery lightning and it's di- distributing itself and it's uh distributing not just collectively on a group but it says this uh fire rested on each one of them so there, god is being very specific very particular as he's distributing his power This Holy Spirit from heaven kind of light on every single individual. 120 people sitting there and these tongues of fire from heaven are landing on literally on them. That's amazing. So it landed not just on the apostles, it landed on the faithful women that were there as well. This is a great contrast to things in the Old Testament. Many times in the Old Testament, God did these kind of things corporately. In other words, he would would do a supernatural act of this sort maybe on the nation as a whole, or maybe just the leader of the nation, or maybe just the prophet, or just the priest, or just... And here it's on every individual believer. It is a new age. It is a new era of this incredible, unprecedented, one-on-one personal intimacy that God of the universe is going to have with every person who embraces his gospel. And they are going to be endowed with the Holy Spirit. And that's what's happening here. God is answering the promise that he would give the Holy Spirit to every believer in a way that he had never done in history. So every one of these 120 believers is receiving the very presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Amazing. Verse 4. So not only did they hear this amazing act with this violent sound coming from heaven and seeing this lightning-like fire from heaven, they were also actually practically engaged in the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. That's verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So it is the Holy Spirit that's doing this. This is not just some natural act. This isn't something they conjured up on their own. This is God Almighty initiating it, doing an amazing thing. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What this means is the Spirit of God came to rest upon every believer. 
and several ministries the Holy Spirit did that day that were very unique. He baptized every single one of those believers into the church, the body of Christ. This is the day that the church was born. And when you become a Christian, according to 1 Corinthians 13 and other places, you are, or chapter 12, you are baptized into the body of Christ. Whenever you got saved, you are joined supernaturally through an invisible, supernatural, real transaction. You are adopted, baptized into the body of Christ. That's what the Spirit of God did with these 120 people in that very moment. He created the body of Christ. He created the church and baptized all of them in it. Also, the Holy Spirit indwelt every single one of them in fulfillment of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31. And from this day forward, the Holy Spirit didn't just come that day and leave them. He came in an amazing way and he indwelt them. And so the very next day they were still indwelt with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you are a Christian today, you have the Spirit of God living in you. Isn't that amazing? I think, well, I don't feel like I do. Well, I don't see him. Well, you do. If you if you are truly a Christian, you believe the gospel, he is there. Romans 8, 11, many other places tell us that. That's why Jesus literally could say, I will never leave you or forsake you. Even when I go back to heaven. How's that possible? What do you mean you'll never leave us or forsake? You went back to heaven. I can't see Jesus. I've never seen. Well, he has given us of his spirit that is real, that is literal, that lives in you. And it started here. So they were baptized by the Spirit. They were indwelt by the Spirit. Not only that, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's explicitly what the text says in verse 4. Filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. Uh, That word consistently throughout, especially the Gospels, but the rest of the New Testament, refers to being controlled by something. This verb, same word, the Pharisees were filled with with anger or rage. What did that mean? They were controlled by rage. Same verb. Here they are filled with the Spirit, meaning these disciples on that day, in that very moment, they were controlled by the Spirit of God. And it permeated every area of their life. Their attitudes, their volition, their desires, their physical bodies on this day, what they would accomplish for God, the words that they would speak, the unity that they felt. They are perfectly set to walk in the fruits of the Spirit in this very moment. Beautiful and amazing. So that's the ministry that the Spirit of God accomplished that day was baptism and dwelling and filling of these Christians, preparing them for something amazing. This is when God would begin to lay the foundation of the church because that's what the Bible says. God built and laid the foundation of the church on the apostles and the prophets, and it began on this day. So point number one, the recipients of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit It's the disciples, not just the apostles, but the disciples. What an amazing day. So here they are. They're near Jerusalem. We know that's where the upper room was. We know there are a million plus people. It's during the, it's early morning. So already the temple has been flooded with people. The streets are flooded. There could be in excess of 1.5 million people, pilgrims from everywhere, So it's very congested, people coming and going everywhere. And so that's the context. And so they're in this upper room, and there's this massive, deafening, violent sound that they hear in the room. And it was heard beyond the walls of where they were. It went out and echoed into the neighborhood. And we don't know how far, but it definitely did, because that's point number two. Let's look at it, verses 5 through 11, the repercussions of this amazing supernatural uh, intrusion that God Almighty had on planet Earth that day. Number two, the witnesses of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. These weren't the participants initially. They were witnesses that was Jewish pilgrims who had come from nations all over the earth. That's 5 through 11. Let's look at it. Now, there were, now, right now, as soon as this violent rushing wind made this massive tumult of a sound that reverberated all throughout Jerusalem, the visiting, they heard it. Boom! Man, did you hear that? Was that? What was that? That happens to us sometimes. Was it Was it thunder that was with the lightning? Was it the military doing exercises? Was it something else uh, frightening or dramatic or scary? What in the world was that? So they, there is intrigue. There is curiosity. There is interest. And so these pilgrims, they, they follow the noise. And they go to, towards the complex of where this upper room is. It could very well be that that upper room had a reputation. They knew, uh, oh, the disciples, this is where they hang out. 
and the followers of Jesus, that small minority of a group of people that actually believed Jesus was true. So who knows what the attitude of the neighbors was, but could very well be they knew where that room was. It was close to the temple in the heart of Jerusalem and crowds of people. We know it is crowds because there's a minimum of 3,000 people who end up on the perimeter of where the house is, according to the rest of the passage. So there's probably more than 3,000. Huge, massive throng of people ushering in to this to these disciples. Verse 5, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem or residing in Jerusalem. They were devout men from every nation under heaven. So they were probably pilgrims from, well, we know they're from different nations and countries because it's going to tell us where they're from. They're probably pilgrims here for the Passover and for Pentecost. They're living in Jerusalem right now because they've been there for at least seven weeks, two, three months. So, yeah, they've been living, been living here for three to four months, waiting for the two greatest feast days of the year. They are from different uh, countries around the world, all the way from Rome, down in Africa, Egypt, east, the other direction, Arabia, because throughout Old Testament history, the Jews had been displaced in many different ways, different times, under Sennacherib, under Nebuchadnezzar. So the Jews are scattered all over the world. And then they had children, and during the exile, not all the Jews came back from Babylon, and so many of the Jewish ancestors stayed there over in the area of Iraq and Iran. And so at this time, some of these pilgrims from all of those places end up here. They learned the language and the culture of the native country they had been living in, but they also probably knew Greek, and if they were faithful Jews, they probably knew Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, the language of God's Old Testament. And so uh, there are all kinds of Jews living in the area. Devout men, that devout always refers to Jews, so this is Jews only, the Jewish men. They were from every nation under heaven. That doesn't mean uh, southern Australia and the Aborigines. It means the then-known biblical world, and the emphasis is on actually wherever on earth, there was a community of Jewish people is the emphasis. And if you trace the 15 names of the nations, you see that the hub is Israel and they are all these nations and peoples around the perimeter or the basin of the Mediterranean Sea. You can literally see that on a map. All these countries are being represented. That's where these men were from. Most of these men hadn't heard the fullness of the gospel about Jesus Christ, so they need more information. And when this sound occurred, the multitude, the massive crowd, they came together and assembled. And they were bewildered. What in the world? Did you guys hear that noise? What is going on? Are we going to die? Is it the end of the world? So there's a lot of commotion. There is major confusion. That's what mean, bewildered means. This needed to be explained and interpreted. So they are bewildered. I bet you some of them were afraid, utter fear. So they're bewildered because they were each one. So uh, they were each one hearing the disciples speak in their own language. So what happened was they heard this massive thundering sound of a noise. Like a violent wind. So they went to go see what that was. And while they're there, they hear another noise. And this is continual and ongoing. And it is languages of 120 different human beings speaking. Speaking loud proclaiming, actually, almost preaching. And they were preaching the wonderful works of God. It was deliberate. It was loud. It was 120 different people. And they were speaking in different languages. And so all these people coming to hear this, they're like, well, wait, wait a minute. I hear the, the Persian language being spoken in a very dignified, eloquent, perfect manner. I didn't know there were other Persians here. Who, who, what is going on up there? And then an Egyptian, same thing, hearing his native tongue being spoken and uh, the Parthians, their language being spoken. And so there's this, it's just a beautiful harmony of voices that those who had their native language being spoken, they zeroed in on it. It's like, wow, what in the, what is going on? So they're confused by that. And they were bewildered. And they even said, uh, wow, we hear people speaking in our own language, by the way. Uh, the end of verse 4, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, a manifestation that was given to them was they were able to speak in tongues, it says. They spoke with other tongues. At the end of verse 4, they spoke with other tongues as the Spirit of God enabled them to do so. The word tongue is glossa, where we get the word tongue, mouth, and it always refers to a, lang- a human language. 
a human language that could be understood and articulated for those who know the language. This is not ecstatic speech that is inarticulate babble. The word is very specific. As a matter of fact, it says, the end of verse 4, they began to speak. That, the word speak is the normal word to, to speak a language, to talk. And then glosa, to speak a language, a human language. As the Spirit was giving them utterance. Utterance is a very unique Greek word, and it means to speak forth. As a matter of fact, it also means to speak a dignified and elevated discourse. So this is like a refined ability to speak a language, a mastery over the language. They weren't just blabbing the same language that could be understood by other people. This was the language in its purest, most elegant form that they were speaking. That is the word used at the end of verse 4. It's amazing. So the apostles who were Galilean and Jews, who probably growing up in the synagogue, they knew Hebrew and Aramaic or forms thereof. They were in the Roman Greek culture, so they probably knew Greek as well as maybe some kind of a form of an Italian. And, and they also spoke Galilean. What's that? Hey, y'all. It was like this uh, very uncouth, unsophisticated twang. As a matter of fact, the Jews down in the south, they thought the Galileans, the Galilean Jews up north, they were uneducated. They were not refined. They were like uh, gutter people. Because they had this twang and this accent. And they, they didn't pronounce all them their syllables properly. And when you was talking to a Galilean, you knew it. That's why over and over again in, in the book of Acts, it's like, wait, aren't you guys Galileans by the way you talk? What do you know? You're not educated. You don't study under Gamaliel. So they, they were limited in the languages that they knew. But here, with the power and the oncoming of the Holy Spirit, they are able to speak languages they never learned, they were probably never exposed to, and they spoke those languages instantaneously, spontaneously, as they were led by God perfectly to a T, so that those in the audience who spoke the same language would hear them speak and hear the amazing glories of Almighty God. So they had a ready audience for the launch of the gospel. And there would be no human barrier of the curse of Babel. That would be overcome by God's grace with this amazing gift. So that all would understood, understand the same message at the same time. And that's why they were just, they were amazed. The words there, bewildered, amazed, marveled. And then they asked, verse 8, how is it that we hear each, we each hear them speak in our own language? That word, Greek word, dialect. We hear them speak in our own language, dialect. You know what that means? That just means a human language. It's not babble. It's not ecstatic speech. It's not unintelligible. It is a language, a known language that could be learned. But the apostles, they didn't learn it. They were given it supernaturally, instantaneously. Well, we hear the same dialects to which we were born. That's why we know they're pilgrims. They were born in areas and nations where they learned these foreign languages. And then uh, Luke gives, for some reason, he gives us 15 different areas or nations where these different pilgrims are from. Uh, look at them, verse 9, real quick. The Parthians were there. That's the area of Iran today, probably Persian-ish kind of a language. Uh, then there were the Medes. That's southwest of the Caspian Sea, and it, it was a very different by the way, these 15 nations are really 15 different languages. The emphasis here is on the different languages these people spoke. Go, taking us back to Babel and the confusion, how God overrides the confusion of these languages. Uh, so the Medes. Then you got the Elamites, north of the Persian Gulf, east of the Tigris River, residents of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means uh, the land between the rivers, the area of Iraq and Babylon. And then Judea, uh, Judea, generically speaking, in the days of Solomon and David, which was a huge swath covering not just Jerusalem, but all the way up to Syria, God's land, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia are all located Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, but they all had their own different language. Different, same region, different. Uh, that's when I went to Africa last summer. That was true. We were there in the city of Accra and we were working with Africans, and they had this language, and then there's another group of people. They live in the same town, and they got a different language. They don't even understand each other, just different dialects within the same region. Well, that's true here. Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, 
different languages in the same region. Verse 10, also in Asia Minor, southern Asia Minor, is Phrygia and Pamphylia, different languages. Most of these, by the way, are somewhere else in the New Testament, these towns or cities or nations. Uh, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, hence your atelier. Both Jews and proselytes, those who converted to Judaism. Verse 11, Cretans. Cretans was a major island in the Mediterranean Sea. It probably referred to uh, seafarers, or the, like the Viking dudes of the day. They had their own weird language, the language of the sea. So that's what Cretans referred to. And then the Arabs is the desert dwellers. So you got the seafarers and the desert dwellers kind of clumped together because they kind of defy conventional boundaries. But they spoke a language as they came and passed each other. So... Uh, we hear them speak in our own tongue, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And probably the greatest mighty deed they were hearing was this Jesus Christ, this who professed to be the Messiah, who came in fulfillment of the Old Testament, who died on the cross uh, for sinners, who raised again from the dead, just as he said he would, ascended on high, reigns as king of kings, and offers salvation to all sinners. That were the mighty deeds they were proclaiming, the gospel. And that's what they heard. So there are 15 nations chosen by Luke here. I don't know if there are more or not, but these 15 are very uh, specific in terms of they cover pretty much all known areas during the apostles' days and in the early new church and where Jews lived in any, any one of these nations. Also, which is interesting, these 15 nations include descendants from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That is amazing. If you uh, do a search in the Bible and a study... You can trace the lineage of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem, Ham, and Japheth represent all of humanity since the days of Noah. In other words, uh, this extends to all of humanity. God wants to incorporate everyone into his family through the message of Jesus Christ. It is not reserved only for Jews or only people in the Greco-Roman world, but to all of humanity. Just like when Jesus confronted the woman at the well who had been immoral with several men, and Jesus knew it. He exposed her sin. Then he offered her forgiveness. She understood that. She was convicted. And she realized, wow, this isn't just a prophet. This is the Messiah. In fulfillment of the Old Testament, she went back and told everybody in town, all the Samaritans. She said, could not this be the Messiah? And then she declared that he was the Savior of the world. Not the Savior of the Samaritans. Not the Savior of the Jews but of the world. And that reality is coming to fruition right here. The gospel is for all of humanity. The saving works of God. So those are the witnesses. The pilgrims seeing this amazing initiation of God's work never seen before. Let's go on to point number three. Now, God has prepared a beautiful platform by which Peter, the spokesman of the apostles, would speak the gospel. We'll see that next week. That's the rest of the chapter. Peter preaches the first evangelistic sermon of the Christian era, of the church. It's amazing. It is succinct. It is powerful. It's all about Jesus, who he is and what he did. And he's speaking to thousands of religious, Jewish, seekers. They desired a relationship with God, thousands. And we know that when Peter is done preaching a sermon, we'll see it next week, that many believe, many respond. They were pricked to the heart. What must we do? I want to believe. I want to be right with God. I believe what you just preached, Peter. So there was a great response, thousand in the thousands. So that tell, if there are 3,000 that responded, that means the crowd's got to be way bigger than that. And any time the gospel goes out, any time the truth about Jesus goes out, any time there's an embrace of the truth in a crowd, you can always count on what? A skeptic, right? You can always count on a mocker. You can always count on someone who disbelieves. That's true. That's just the way it is. Jesus said that time and time again. There will always be weeds among the wheat. There will always be goats among the sheep. And then you see Paul's ministry throughout the book of Acts. Everywhere he goes, he preached the gospel. And it's a some believed. Yet many doubted. And some chased him out of town trying to take his head off. So there are always doubters. There's always resistance to the truth. 
from sinners. And so that's the same thing here. In this huge crowd of Jewish people who say they love God, say they love Yahweh, say they love the Old Testament, they're looking for the Messiah, and then God says, okay, boom, here's the beginning of the fulfillment of the work of the Messiah right in front of your eyes. And then Peter interprets it with a powerful sermon, and the response is that 100% of the people believe and come to Jesus. No. No. There are many who were convicted, they understood, they hardened their heart, and they decided, you know what, I love my sin more than I love God. That's just the way it is. Jesus said that would always be the response. Some would believe, some would question, and some would mock. So that's point number three, the skeptics. There are those who believe all that's going on, but yet there are skeptics. There's a few. The skeptics of the Spirit, a few mockers, 12 through 15. Let's look at it. And so this huge, massive crowd, they continued in amazement. They were just flabbergasted, and they are not getting relief. What is going on? And great perplexity. Okay, there's a fourth adjective defining their confusion. Amazement and great perplexity. Just And they continue to say to one another, what does this mean? What is what is going on? Hey, do you know what's going on? No, I don't know what's going on. Do you know what's going on? That's, that's how this is going. This hubbub of question that probably just continues to escalate and rise. Well, verse 13, there's the mockers. But others, we don't know how many. They're seeing all this stuff. They're hearing this 120, these weird Christians anyway, these weird isolated minority of a group of people up there in that room who actually believed in Jesus. And they're on the periphery and they're, they're mocking. They're mocking the 120 Christians. They're mocking the apostles. And they're mocking what God is doing. What is God doing? He is supernaturally speaking foreign languages through the apostles and disciples of languages they'd never heard of or learned before and so the mockers over on the sideline like a guy uh could be he's jewish and he's from uh egypt so he doesn't know all these other languages and he hears all these other languages being spoken and to him it is just rubbish and babble it is mumbo jumbo because he doesn't know the 14 other languages that are listed or delineated here so to him it's just a cacophony of noise What in the world? They look ridiculous. What are they doing? So that's their conclusion, verse 13. Others were mocking. So mocking, present, it continued. It wasn't just a one-time comment. Mocking, mocking, spreading the word. Ha, ha, ha. Probably forming their own little clique or their own little group, protesters. Mocking the apostles. Mocking the work of God. And they said it loud enough that somebody heard it amidst the 5,000 plus people there because Luke recorded it. How did Luke, Luke got this information from an eyewitness. Somebody told Luke about it. Look, it was amazing that day. Man, you should have been there. It was just unbelievable. It was awesome. Oh, by the way, there were some mockers there, some rabble rousers over in the corner holding signs. No, they weren't holding it. But anyway, protesting, creating a disturbance, drawing attention to themselves to the point that some spokesman spoke up and said, uh, they are full of sweet wine. They're drunk. That's what that means. Sweet wine. Uh, wine and alcohol with high content of alcohol. That's what's going on. This isn't the work of God in the Spirit, the fulfillment of Scripture. They're drunk. Verse 14. Well, Peter, uh, Peter is usually the, usually the impetuous one, at least, you know, not all the time. But he was, he was the one who was always uh, had the courage to speak up, whether he said something stupid or something amazing. So he's the spokesman. He is courageous. He is bold. He doesn't fear man. He doesn't fear the critics. And now the difference is Peter is filled with the Spirit of God. So, you know, this time he is going to get it right. So Peter stands up, or he takes his... So what happened was they came down from the house, and now they're before the crowd of... 5,000 plus people. And people probably are just moving in on them. And and Peter takes his stand. In other words, everybody made it clear. Okay, Peter wants to speak. And Peter's allowed to speak. And he must have been a powerful man with a powerful voice. He didn't have amplification. And they heard him. And he bellowed this thing out the top of his lungs to that crowd. Peter taking his stand with the 11 apostles. They were one. They were unified. They weren't bickering. They weren't arguing about who would be the greatest 
in the kingdom. They are one in the spirit. There is solidarity. Peter, I got your back. Peter, one against 5,000. I got my 11 with me. Peter taking a stand with the 11, he raised his voice. Top of his lungs and declared to them. He screamed it out. Men of Judea. It's almost a technical phrase. Identifying all of them as Jews. Yes, I understand you come from 15 different countries, but we are all men of Judea. We are all men of the promised land. We're all men of Jerusalem. We're all men of the temple. That's what brought us here. Men of Judea. So he has solidarity with them. Oneness. Validating his right to speak authoritatively and be heard. Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk. Isn't it? That is profound. In terms of argumentation. Hey, they're drunk. No, they're not. That was Peter's answer. He just cut to the chase. He, he just took the lie head on. He took the deception head on and just defaced it. Eviscerated it. They're drunk. No, they're not. Peter is moved by the spirit of God. So he says what it isn't, and then he speaks, he supplants that with the truth. Let this be known. These men are not drunk as you suppose. For it is only the third hour of the day. It's only eight or nine in the morning. This is kind of funny. It's only, people don't get drunk at eight, nine in the morning. They're still in bed from a hangover from the night before. That's still true today. Usually you wait till later in the day get drunk and that's just a practical reason peter it's it's only eight to nine in the morning people aren't drunk in their community that was true people didn't go out and drink and get drunk at eight and nine in the morning so very practical approach uh, in dealing with lies deception and error it's not getting overly sophisticated and philosophical it's just speak the truth because the truth is the most powerful weapon of all so i'm going to stop there with the skeptics And then we are going to pick up next week this amazing sermon that Peter preaches now that he's laid the foundation and the awesome response as God's Spirit works on the hearts of sinners to think about, be convicted, embrace that message. Well, I opened up with Genesis chapter 11 and how sin divides, judgment divides, forgiveness in Christ unifies. The gospel, when it is understood and believed, unifies, beings, brings peace and harmony and unity among God's people. That's God's ideal. That's his intent. And so I want to close with the contrast of, or the antithesis of Genesis 11 and Babel of sin and judgment dividing people. And the only solution to humanity of that which overcomes all this division, you know, we, we got the message that we hear all the time on the news and all these organizations, and even the government. We need racial reconciliation. We need, we've got a racial divide in this country. We need to fix it. He ain't going to fix it. Every country has a racial divide, and every country's had a racial divide all throughout history because of sin. There's only one solution. It's a supernatural solution that comes from Jesus Christ and him alone. And so that's Galatians 3.28, and that's the verse I want to leave you. A beautiful promise regarding the blessing and the byproduct of the efficacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28, sin divides, but Jesus unites. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. So that's uh, nationalities. That's, That's races. That's ethnicities. That's languages those are all barriers and divides but paul says well from god's point of view for those who believe in jesus christ those who are christian those who are all in the same family of god those things are superficial they are done away there is neither jew nor greek there's neither slave nor free that's your socioeconomic status no ritzy rich people who look down on the scum of the earth because they don't have the position they do that's what happens in the world they don't see those who have less or live in less as equals. But that's not true in the church among God's people. We're all one in Jesus Christ. That's Paul's point there. There are no barriers. So there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. And there is neither male nor female. 
Oh, we need somebody to come along and finally institute fully femininity on an equal level with males. Well, that's not going to ha- that only happens in Jesus Christ, actually. And God, because he is the creator, he created man and woman together, equal partners as one before almighty God. And so that's why Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for you all. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are all one in Christ Jesus. One family of God saved by grace, one blessed savior, one heavenly father, one amazing Holy Spirit that dwells every single one of us. And thus we have a beautiful, supernatural unity that only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, this was the birthday of the church in the book of Acts. But what's kind of providential is next Sunday, May 15th, is is actual Pentecost Sunday. I say we celebrate next week. Somebody make a birthday cake for Jesus and the church, and we can celebrate together. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this day, this blessed privilege we have to be with God's people, the saints, to put aside just for a moment the anxieties and worries and frustrations of our life from the week and the fears that lie ahead. So we thank you for this wonderful privilege to be with God's people in the church, the body of Christ, to worship together, to sing together, to pray together, to hear the word of God and learn together. Thank you for this amazing work that you did historically. God, thank you for reminding us once again that you have a plan to overcome the problems in this world, the root of which is sin. The solution is always in you, Lord Jesus, and your blessed gospel. Thank you for salvation that you've imparted to every single one of us that knows you personally. And God, we pray that you continue to work through your Holy Spirit, drawing people to you, that they would repent and come to know you and have a personal, intimate, blessed relationship with you, knowing total forgiveness of sin and what it means to have the deepest intimacy with the Creator as Heavenly Father. Help us to be faithful witnesses to that end and also praying continually on behalf of those who need you. Pray now that you go before us with your Holy Spirit as you promised to do. We give you all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.